recorded? Yeah. So this is the first time we've done this uh, podcast. It's a pleasure to have uh, with me Dr. Zahota, and you work at the paramedical practice. That's right, yeah, yeah. And I don't know if you guys have noticed this recently, but um, Dr. Zahota had a really good article that recently went into the Cape Messenger. Great yeah, Grayson and Cape Messenger. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about that and your, your angle? Yeah, I mean, I, I regularly write health articles for the Kent Messenger and the Gravesend Messenger. Uh, and, you know, occasionally go on BBC Radio Kent talking about obesity, particularly childhood obesity. Uh, my passion has always been about health prevention and promotion. Mm-hmm. Um, so this particular article was on exercise. Uh, and the reason I wanted to write it is that, you know, many people think that once they start taking their medication, that's it, it's going to save them. You know, whether they have a heart attack, you know, they're on six or seven tablets, diabetes, stroke, whatever. Um, and the, the, the problem is that there is no substitute for exercise. You can take all the pills in the world, uh, but if you don't exercise, if you have a heart attack, your arteries are going to block up again. If you have a stroke, your chances of a stroke are going to be much, much more. Um, so there, there is no substitute. And th- this is what the message I wanted to get out to everyone, was that you have to do... The body was meant to move. Um, and obviously there's so many benefits to it. And I think with the you know, increasing rates of diabetes and dementia especially, you know, we've got an aging population and rates of dementia are through the roof. And there's plenty of evidence that keeping active, exercising will prevent that. Um, and that was really the, the, the main message I want to get through to people is that medication will only go so far, you know, 10, 15%, but exercise will help you, will always 100% help you. When, when we're looking at our patients, and you've mentioned to me the word holistic before, mm. and when we're trying to be as holistic as possible, we're always trying to look to what is the pillar or what is the keystone that if we correct, uh, we can have the biggest effect. Now, when you're looking at this problem, which is a growing health epidemic where people are eating the wrong foods and not exercising enough, what would you say are the key pillars in our society that are holding up those habits? Is it down to culture or education? Or? I think, uh, I mean, if, you know, I, I, I live uh, in, in a, a village called Mepham and obviously I work in Gravesend. Uh, and you, you go to the schools in Mepham and they look at the people and they are far healthier, they're fitter, they eat healthier. You move, as soon as I'm in Gravesend and I walk through the town centre, um, you've got all these fast food places um, and the rates of child obesity are huge. I think Gravesend and Dartford, I think something yeah. like third or fourth in the, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. uh, in, in the United Kingdom. So a lot of it, I think, it has to be, has, is the education and the environment. When you've got fast food places all around you, um, and that just triggers off cravings, and education is vitally important. So you, you, if you're growing up in an environment where everybody else is overweight and inactive, you're going to learn those kind of bad habits, unfortunately. Uh, and then when you've got, you know, McDonald's, KFC, all these, you know, fast foods and these sweets you sell for 50p, um, those gr- habits get ingrained and they're very, very difficult. So I think the environment and education is, is, is a massive uh, part to play. Now, when we're looking specifically at, say, if we do take um, kind of grazing and methanol as like our petri dish and we say, what are the main differences between them? When I look at business, and as they say fast food or sweet shops, they are businesses. They go, they're always going to be where the demand is highest. So have you come across any reasons as to why you think certain areas or certain populations of people might demand these establishments more than others? 
Yeah, I mean, I was, I'm, I'm on the Kent Health and Wellbeing Board, and one of the uh, thing, one of the things I suggested uh, to everybody is that you know we need to there needs to be a distance of fast food places you know from schools because you know as soon as you come out of school you know you go past them and exactly what you said where the demand is you know you know institutions will set up you, McDonald's they they're not silly they know they they're going to go to kind of you know they'll, they'll open up in Glasgow or whatever Scotland's got very high rates of uh, obesity and things so it's just it's it's a difficult one but I think a lot has to do with I suppose education and money I think poorer places places that are deprived are will always be hit hardest when it comes to the standard of food uh, and everything else and it's it's a shame and for that poor kid trying to you know come out of that environment uh, it is difficult it is difficult and that's why I think for me, schools have got a big part to play, and I think I wish they would take more of a role. And they aren't slowly going to. I mean, there was this uh, teacher in Kent, and I think she banned first she banned fizzy drinks, mm -hmm. and then she banned crisps, mm -hmm. and she said you know she, they were only allowed on a Friday, which is brilliant. Mm -hmm. I think you need you know headmasters, headmistresses, schools. They 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 need to be more powerful. They need to just make a you know, massive stand. I think you know this kind of um, daily mile that's been promoted all around England. Um, I think um, there's a tennis player, Andy Murray, yeah. So he's kind of pushing as well. You know, we know that if kids are more active, their, their grades are going to be better. Um, and I think, you know, especially for like place, places like Gravesend, for a kid to escape, I think the schools have to be vital. And GP surgeries, we, you know, GP surgeries are very, very busy, but they're places that, you know, families will always go to. And I think, for me, I think GP surgeries should be promoting health promotion and things. So I think the NHS needs to take a bigger role. And they are slowly, but it's very slow. I definitely agree with you. And I think with what you're talking about and the way that you're talking about it, you're talking about a real multifaceted approach to people's healthy habits. And from the people that we've seen here, we see a, a huge distribution of, a huge variety of people coming from all different kinds of backgrounds. And the one thing that we've noticed is that when we do have people who are fit and healthy, a lot of the time their choices aren't necessarily always a conscious, rational decision to be healthy. It's something that they've culturally been indoctrinated into at a young age. And one thing that you've touched on when it comes to schools being more active and the NHS being more active, these hubs, these community hubs being more active in constantly promoting healthy lifestyle. I think that there has to be almost a cultural shift and that if we do pound education and we do uh, indoctrinate people almost by default into a healthy routine, then hopefully, like you said, we'll be able to create a shift in people's habits. We've had a, um, a few questions come through uh, that you guys have answered online. Uh, and uh, Dr. Sorry if it's right, I'm going to read through a few of these and we'll, we'll, we'll take your, your opinion on them. Sure. Um, do you think employers should be doing more to encourage people to exercise and keep active? Working for an ambulance trust, I do not feel that there's enough emphasis on my own health and lifestyle, yet I am relied upon to deliver advice about it. Things, for example, such as cheaper gym memberships, incentives to walk, such right to work, etc. This is a question by uh, paramedic Lewis Atkinson. So, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, hundred percent, absolutely. Uh, unfortunately, you know the the paramedics that I've encountered because of the night, the shift patterns, and it it creates havoc with their their lifestyle, their their health, and they do have higher rates of diabetes. So, anyone, you know, like 
taxi drivers, lorry drivers, paramedics, unfortunately are at a higher risk of it. And, and it's important that employers do invest you know, in, in their health and a healthier workforce will be le less sickness state. So you know, employers don't really understand that. You know, if we, if we invest in, in our workforce, provide them with cheaper gym membership, you know, it'll, it'll pay us back. So I, uh, I, I feel for Lewis here because um, I, I know quite a few paramedics and I know quite a, a lot of them, you know, they, they, you know, they are trying to give health advice to people, but the, for, for themselves, they are overweight and they don't really exercise. Not all of them, uh, you know, but part of them, part of it, I think it's to do with, you know, your working hours, you're sitting for long periods and, and the fast food that, you know, you guys grab at night where you haven't got time to eat. And I think it is, it is difficult and you, you do need to kind of focus on that. So the NHS is slowly playing a part. So would you therefore say that, do you feel like it's the responsibility of our health professions, our health professionals, our health leaders to set a good example? Yeah, I mean, Simon Stevens, who, you know, who heads the NHS, he is slowly trying to, I mean, I think it was, he was talking about free Zumba classes and things. So it is slowly going, getting out there, but the NHS is such a big monster to try and, you know, do anything. It's just, it just, everything trickles down too slowly. And the problem is we haven't got time. You know, we, you know, this uh, diabetes epidemic and the, it's, it's here, it's now. And you, you've got it, you need, we need something radical. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't know what the answer is. And we were talking about the multifaceted approach, but something needs to happen and it needs to happen quick, really. Going, going, let's say if it's too, almost it's too late to start now, but we need to still plan, still start planning for the future. If, say, you were to go back to, say, post-World War II, where um, rates of diabetes were at an all-time low, mm. people weren't able to overeat, and mm. slowly after that we had uh, this agricultural revolution where food was now being produced in almost like a surplus, which is maybe say like a reaction to the fact that we had to ration our food at that time. Mm. What would you have changed, say, 40, 50 years ago to prevent us from entering this epidemic now? So maybe rather than say, right, this is what should have been done, what could we have done? Yeah, it's difficult. You know, I mean, back in the, you know, those days, I think sugar was a treat. It was you know, given as a treat and we were active, active enough to, to burn it off. Uh, and then... Uh, Unfortunately, it, it comes down to money, doesn't it? You know, people, businesses need to make money. Um, food, food makes a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And if you get, like, let's take Coca-Cola. Um, I mean, they've got the whole world addicted to, to Coke. I mean, uh, um, and, you know, sugar, it creates a lot of money. And it's, it's a difficult one. Uh, but going, I mean, going back, I mean, it's, it, you know, with hindsight, I think, you know, combination of that, you know, just technology itself, you know, we, we, all, we all know with, you know, with cars, iPads, iPhones, all that is, uh, is restricting us from moving naturally. Um, for me, the way, and the other biggest thing for me is refined foods, refined carbohydrates. People don't understand, uh, you know, they need more education about that. Uh, and bringing in the, kind of the white bread and the, you know, the cornflakes, which rapidly increase your blood sugar. Um, they, I mean, uh, you know, if we knew the health risks associated with those kind of foods, they should have never been you know, brought forward. But um, I, I would definitely have you know, hit all the, the food industries. I would have hit them harder, hit them harder with tax, knowing the danger that these, you know, these uh, foods do. I think that one thing that we definitely need to highlight as well um, because the way, unfortunately, 
modern-day society looks at obesity and poor health is that it's a, it's a very individualistic problem, i.e. if you're overweight, it's your issue, it's your problem, if you've got diabetes, it's your problem. But generally, when we look at the data, when we look at trends, we see that it's really a human problem rather than an individual problem. And the fact is that when we look at places like, for example, Okinawa is a good example in Japan, who used to have a heavily plant-based diet and they were they used to have the, the lowest mortality rate in the world, mm -hmm. they lived the longest in the world. Yeah. Um, but very soon since um, an introduction to of, of McDonald's and KFC to Okinawa, you see that their lifestyle changes, you see their life expectancy massively reduce. Um, so, you know, as as you're saying, we almost have to be able to engineer our own future and engineer what is going to be good for people rather than, I suppose, what people want. Absolutely. There's another thing I just wrote. There's another article I wrote where we were talking about the kind of refined foods and things. Um, what, and this is, you know, the, the big message I want to get out to families and parents and, and also grandparents as well. Um, and there's a quote that I wrote in one of the previous articles. When you're giving your kids, you know, the treats at school, at parties and all the refined foods, thing, you, and this is, a, I, I want you guys to remember this, you're killing your kids with kindness, you know, because it, you know, the, the kid wants it. You know, which, which is fine and things like that. You've already got an overweight, obese kid. Um, and there are kids now who are eight, nine years old, 10 years old, with type two diabetes related to the obesity. And it's a kind of, you know, this reward that you're giving the child, it's not a reward. Um, you're, you are laying the foundation for diabetes, mm -hmm. for heart disease, mm -hmm. for dementia, for, for everything. And, you know, again, I read a recent newspaper article about children having hip replacements, you know, earlier because of, they're so obese. Oh, congenital dysplasia? No, 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 no. Because of obesity, they're going to have wow. earlier, earlier hip okay. replacements. Okay. I mean, it's, it's I mean, big deal. shocking. Yeah. Big, big, big deal. And the correlations people, between that and arthritis elsewhere in the body. Absolutely. You know, yeah, and I think just people... You know, we, we need to educate. I mean, I need to educate. I mean, I'm, I'm always educating, talking to my family as well, you know, about, you know, you know, my children go to parties and things like that. You know, it's it's fine as treats now, now, again, but it seems to be every weekend there's a treat, every day. Especially since, because there's, there's that side of things when you're talking about ch treating children, but then there's the other, the other problem, which is appeasing children. For example, a lot of parents who want their kids to quieten down, yeah. they give them a sweet to quieten down. Uh, they want them to do their homework, they give them a sweet to do their homework. So it's not a, a reward technically would be given after they do something good, mm -hmm. rather than appeasement where they're literally bargaining with their children yeah. with food to... Yeah. And it's, it's almost like, you know, like you said, there's, there's killing with kindness and then on the other side of the spectrum, um, you're essentially placing your own convenience over your child's health, which is another issue. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, you know, we've talked about how big a beast the NHS is, but how big a beast um, maternal nature is or paternal nature is, that's, mm. a, that's a whole other thing, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's a whole, whole, <laughs> whole different ballgame. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, another question that we've had, um, so from my mum, Beverly Reed, I'm concerned that if I go on blood pressure medication, I will be on them for my whole life. Do you have any suggestions? Most most doctors will say, once I start a tablet, you're gonna you're gonna take it for life. That should not be uh, that should not be said, and that's not the right attitude. And that doesn't give people a chance to use lifestyle to re reverse things. Lifestyle can reverse diabetes, blood pressure, everything. And I, re I and I think doctors need to be re-educated. 
you know, when they say, right, you're going to take, take this apply. It doesn't have to be that way. So if we talk about blood pressure, right, so the, the, the first thing would be obviously, for me, again, exercise. It's known if you do a brisk walk, uh, half an hour later, hour later, check your blood pressure, it's lower. We know, you know, so regular exercise is always, you know, and different type. every exercise is good, but just a brisk 20 minute walk is, is, is adequate. Um, we know that, we know weight loss, you know, will help. And I am controversially a big fan of lowering your carbs, having a more of a low carb diet. We don't, you know, for me, the way I see carbs, they are energy foods. Um, when you were young and your body was like a Ferrari, fine. You, you know, it's, it's great. But, you know, as your, as your body changes uh, and more of it, you know, it's, it's an old escort now, you, you don't need, you know, you don't need as many carbs and things. Why was that controversial? Why, why is that controversial? Because there's data to support a low-carb diet. I've seen data to support low-carb diet and basically low um, insulin-producing diets, so yeah. plant-based diets, yeah. high-fiber diets are shown yeah. to be quite good at, at managing diabetes. But why has that been controversial? It's controversial because dietitians, this, uh, the, the Eat Well plate, they're saying uh, okay. a third of it has to be carbohydrates. So you go, uh, I mean, I, I re, I mean, I'm the diabetes lead for the CCG, so I attended the local diabetes education course, and they're telling you to eat carbohydrates there. They're saying a third of your plate has to be carbohydrates, and I'm thinking, no, they don't. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, they also had biscuits there as well as, as, as snacks, can you believe it? A diabetes education, you know. And you there, think, there were snacks there for there the were people attending. Yeah. Right, yeah, that's nice. It's, 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 <laughs> that's crazy. crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. No healthy snacks, biscuits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, I mean, it, it, I mean I, uh, it's, uh, but, yeah, it's controversial because of that, because dietitians, uh, in nutrition, they more dietitians believe that a third of the plate is based on the eat well plate. That you need carbohydrates for energy, and you need to eat three times a day. You know, for me, and this this is testimony to what you talked about before, which is that the unfortunately with the information that is being put into the NHS, we might not see it seventeen twenty years later. Yeah, right, exactly. And that's, that's literally what. Yeah, the it's is. slowly true. So obviously weight loss so you know uh, if your mum can reduce the carbs did the exercise that's of the, the 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 exercise and the weight loss will lower her blood pressure i'm also a big fan of food as well you know food you know eating the right kind of food so uh, obviously your breath might stink but garlic lowers blood blood pressure you can take garlic pills uh, but it lowers blood pressure. Beetroot is, is another one. So I think if you eat real unprocessed foods, real food, there's lots and lots of vital nutrients in there, you know, that, that will lower blood pressure. That's one thing we would always hear at the clinic when we, especially people coming into us for weight loss, is they, they, they basically argue or they will express how expensive healthy food is. And my answer to them is, well, it depends what you're buying. And what I mean by that is that when we look at the UK in general, the UK um, does not have a calorie problem. Mm. You will not see in the news someone starving to death. No. But what we do have in the UK is possibly more of a vitamin and mineral deficiency overall. So people are more likely to get their daily, you know, recommended daily allowance of calories than they are vitamins and nutrients. So if you were to go to McDonald's, for example, for a pound fifty, calories are very cheap. But for a pound fifty, vitamins and nutrients are very expensive. So having that, creating that shift, we find for our patients in focusing on buying fuel for their body's needs rather than fuel for the waistline or fuel for energy, we find that to be that we see a lot of people getting epiphanies, getting epiphanies when they when they hear that. That's a really important point. Um, 
Yeah, you, I mean, it, and this is the way, the way I sometimes talk to my patients as well. They've got to see food as, you know, feeding their body, energizing their body, not as a, like a tasty snack or a treat. And like you said, you know, the, these cravings. And once you get that shift and you understand that food is supposed to energize your body, then, you know, may, then people kind of do get it. Uh, and the, the nutrients that most people are deficient in, like, you know, I'll go through it. Uh, iron is a big one, mm -hmm. okay? I think a lot of uh, people need to take vitamin D. We're very, very low in vitamin D. B12, particularly as we get older, we're low in B12. Another, and another nutrient is magnesium. So there's, there's, they're, the one, they're the essential ones that a lot of people are very, very low in. Just so people can know, vitamin and mineral deficiencies, they can go below the radar for a long period of time. Um, can you tell us about the symptoms of these nutritional deficiencies, even if they're slight, what some might yeah, tell us? Yeah, I mean, uh, well, B, let's, let's start with B12. B12, uh, you can go to your doctor and get a blood test, but even then, so a B12, I think the range is from 150 to 900. So if, you, um, if your doctor tells you your B12 is 160, that still may be too low for you. You might have been running at 500, 600 for ages. So you know, you, you've got to understand there's a range there. But B12, when, it, when um, so B12 you get memory loss, you get pins and needles in, in your feet, fatigue, tiredness. So that, you know, it's, quite, it's a very, very important. I think a lot of patients with, uh, especially chronic fatigue syndrome, they could benefit with extra B12 injections and things, you know, and I do give them to my patients and that helps, but particularly, but particularly pins and needles, you know, numbness and you know, memory loss and fatigue. And there's certain drugs that lower B12. Um, so the uh, drugs that reduce acid, you know, they're, they're called proton pump inhibitors, and loads and loads of people are on them for acid reflux and indigestion partly because of the diet and everything else, but they're, they're, these are meprazole and zoprazole, they lower B12, as does metformin, which is a common drug for diabetes. Um, iron is another one, again, that's go going to be tiredness, fatigue, hair loss, so if your hair is thinning, um, and the iron kind of pretty much affects everything. Um, so, and vitamin D, vitamin D is a big one, um, and I think many, many people, they're, they're low in it because we, we don't go outside, but we obviously need it for our bones, everybody knows that. But I think there's more evidence coming that we need it for a strong immune system. You know, it really supports a very, very strong immune system. And I think especially if you get taking vitamin D throughout the winter, it, can, it may protect you from colds and things. Okay. Yeah, so that, that's, it. that's it. Magnesium. So magnesium, I found, I found quite a few people with uh, headaches, migraine, are low in magnesium. And if you give them magnesium, you know, they have a massive reduction in their migraine frequency. So yeah, lack of, and also if you're low in magnesium, you, you're a bit twitchy. Your muscles are a bit twitchy. You, you can't relax a bit. So, uh, and so yeah, they're the kind of some of the symptoms of magnesium. It's interesting that you bring up um, vitamin B12 specifically. I think vitamin B12 and calcium because of their, um, because of their symptoms of, of deficiencies, a lot of pins and needles, we see a lot of patients who will have, who will come into us because they think they've got nerve root irritation. Mm. Um, and then you dig a little bit deeper and you go into their diet and they're getting no greens, no vegetables. Mm. Um, so a lot of the time, if you know, the, the nerve root irritation seems a little bit suspect, it doesn't seem like they've got too uh, many mechanical signs pointing to nerve root irritation. A lot of the time uh, we will refer them to the doctor but then we'll ask them to take um, a multivitamin mm -hmm. or we'll ask them to increase their, their, green, their greens intake and 
a lot of the time they get better mm. just from slight yeah. change, slight change to the diet. So a lot of these things can go. So I'm a big fan things. of the get trying to get the you know vitamins like sublingually, which means underneath your tongue. So okay. vitamin D, there's a spray called Delux. You spray it, and that goes directly into your bloodstream. Right. B12 as well. You can get it. I think you can get it from Amazon sublingual. So again, it goes directly. Uh, into your bloodstream, so it's f far more effective. And is, is D3, which is oil-based, is that more? Is that right? That's more effective than... Well, D3, yeah, that's usually, vitamin D3 is the usual mm. one that, that we, we all say. I think, um, I think Healthspan do one where, I think K is important as well. So vitamin D3 with the vi vitamin K uh, is important for both, both those minerals. But again, you know, it's a shame that we have to supplement, but, you know, we could improve our diet and get it, yeah. Uh, next question. So, uh, da, 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 right, I've got, if I have a family history of heart disease and stroke, does that mean that I'm also destined to have them? No, absolutely not. I mean, it, you, you've got to look back and see what family history means. Um, if you've got, you know, very, very fit people who have had heart attacks at 45, under 50, maybe, then you may have, but that's quite rare. We, we have so many patients and it says they've got a family history of heart disease. When you look back, unfortunately, it's been related to smoking, diabetes, obesity. That does not mean family history. It just means that person hasn't looked after themselves. Uh, and, but, but if you're looking at very fit people who, who, um, uh, who are getting heart attacks, then yes. I think that the, the, we've, we've spoken about culture a few times here. When I mean culture, I don't mean culture relating to anything other than your family culture. That is the most important thing, I think, here, in terms of what culture your family are passing down from generation to generation to generation. And if your family culture is to eat a certain way, to smoke a certain amount, to drink a certain amount, to not exercise, then that's something that definitely needs to be changed. There's um, the way that we look at genes, um, you've got your, your genes which don't, you won't actually notice the effect of them. You notice the effect of what's called the phenotype. So the phenotype is basically the expression of that gene in the environment that you're in. So for example, if I was, uh, if I was kept in a box that didn't see daylight, my skin tone would be fairly indistinguishable from someone who is maybe of European descent. But it's my exposure to light that enables me to express that phenotype. Now, when we're looking at genes that are turned on and turned off by diet, if you take the poor dietary choices and if you take the poor exercise choices out of the equation, as you've said, that gene will yeah. potentially not be turned on. And that's the difference, like you said, between family history and it being more down to the environment that you place in your body. So, it brings us on to the next question as well, which is no matter what I do, I cannot help but put on weight, what do you suggest? Is it my genes? No, I, I don't agree with that. Uh, I mean, there are people that are obviously naturally heavier. Yes, you, you, you do get that. You, I, I don't deny that. But, the, you, know, you, you know, for me, I still believe physics is physics. And you still, you know, if you, if you expend energy and uh, you eat the right foods, there's no reason. Uh, in terms of weight, and you, you probably know more than me, Elliot, about this, is that you don't always have to focus on weight and, you know, the body max, you know, because you, when, you, when, you, when you put on muscle, that, you know, you, it's more to do with, uh, I think you'd probably be better at answering yeah, this question. So we're talking about uh, body composition, so what we're saying is that it doesn't really matter 
what the entire weight is, it depends where the weight is. So for example, if you are um, 100 kilos, if you weigh 100 kilos, if you're 30% body fat, that's not good. But if you're 100 kilos and you're, say, 5 to 10% body fat, you're, you're basically like a, that's what 